Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful to be gathered here as a church family and now to read your word together and study it and by your spirit um, seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. And so would you come and do all that you want to do in this place this morning? Would you teach us and shape us and convict us and comfort us? And Lord, have your way here in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, welcome once again to FBC. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just so glad that you're week from today. Just here as we start Holy Week, right? Good Friday service on Friday, Easter Sunday coming up a week from today. We're so eager to celebrate uh, with you and hope that you'll join us. And this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 3, verse 1. That's where we're going to be spending some time as we continue our sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Acts. I got an email this week from someone who was like, oh, good, we get to turn the page in our Bible this week to chapter 3 because we spent, you know, six or seven weeks in chapter 2. It was a long time. And so you get to turn your page now or move your little, you know, marker thing on to chapter 3. Uh, here we go. You, you heard it read aloud. We're, we're uh, digging into some pretty remarkable, miraculous events uh, in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. So we're just going to jump in. Verse 1, you saw it. It said, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon, and now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Again, it was the Beautiful Gate, it was called, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now, remember, the book of Acts, it was written by the first century doctor, historian uh, named Luke, the same author of the Gospel of Luke. And it's a book chronicling the early days of the life of the church. So this movement centered on Jesus, this, this new people, this new, and we see this new family that God was forming uh, centered on his son, Jesus. And we saw uh, the last few weeks how this community uh, was remarkably different from the rest of the world. They were this uncommon community because they were devoted to a certain number of things that we unpacked the past few weeks at the end of chapter 2, right? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the message about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins. He rose again. And so they were devoted to understanding how to follow Jesus in all of life. They were a community devoted to fellowship, to prayer, to breaking bread together, remembering uh, the gospel through that act of communion, but also just table fellowship, right? They didn't just gather in public and see each other on a, on a Sunday or a Saturday. They, they saw each other in their homes, around the table, sharing food and meals, really loving one another. We saw that they're a community marked by generosity, right? As at the end of chapter 2, we see they're selling possessions and distributing the proceeds to anyone who has need among them. So they're marked by love for one another and love for those around them. We also saw last week that they're a, a growing people, right? The Lord is adding to their number. More and more people are being saved. They're hearing the gospel and responding to faith in Christ. Summary, it now is several thousand people strong. And we see after a general summary at the end of chapter 2 of what the church was about, we see now this specific event and encounter between the apostles and this man at the gate by the temple. 
Peter and John are going up to the temple, continuing this Jewish practice of prayer, uh, and they're going there in the afternoon at, for the afternoon time of prayer, about 3 p.m., the text tells us, and we're introduced to a man, verse 2 says, who was lame. He was lame from birth. Now, for anyone in the room under 30, uh, when it says he's lame, it didn't mean that he was uncool. He, you know, he wasn't on TikTok. He didn't know how to use cool words like sus or slaps. Didn't use cool phrases like say less, bro. Being lame didn't mean uncool, but it reminds me of this uh, article, satire, that you maybe have seen. It says, Jesus heals lame man by giving him dope shades and a cool leather jacket. (laughs) Jesus encountered men who were lame, just like Peter and John the apostles do here. But lame, again, didn't mean uncool. And so to heal a lame man didn't mean to make him cool. No, being lame meant simply that your feet didn't work properly. Fully, He was disabled, uh, possibly fully paralyzed, but possibly had some mobility. Either way, his feet or his legs hadn't developed properly. He was immobile. And the text tells us he was that way from birth. I want you to just stop for a moment and think about this man and his condition and what that would mean for a man in the ancient world to be lame. There would be several implications. He he wouldn't be able to work for a living. He wouldn't be able to earn uh, wages. And there weren't social nets like disability payments in those days, and so those who were disabled had to rely on the generosity of their friends or family or or worshipers at the temple who would give alms, give them financial contributions to help them survive. So he was prevented from from living a, a normal life, working in society, but also there were barriers that regarded uh, worship and his religious life. See, some scholars suggest that Jews who were disabled like this or crippled in this way were prohibited from even entering the temple. That's why he's posted up at the gate. See, there were some Levitical laws that talked about priests uh, who had to be fully healthy in order to serve in that way. But some scholars uh, and, and religious leaders would take that rule reserved for priests, disabled in this way, extend it to all people. And so they would say, hey, all Jews that were disabled in this way would be barred from entering the temple at all for worship. On top of the law, there was this prominent cultural barrier, this cultural belief that that physical defects or uh, serious illnesses at times were God's punishment for sin. That was a pretty common thought back then. If that were true, then this man is lame as a result of some serious offense. Maybe his sin, uh, maybe the sin of his parents, it's, it's their fault somehow. Right? And sometimes we even subtly think the same thing today. We look at those who are hurting and suffering and we say, well, what did they do to get themselves in this mess? Right? They, they clearly caused this or, or probably brought this upon themselves. Sometimes just in popular thought, we do the math in the same way, even though... That's a fundamental misunderstanding, and Jesus himself refuted that type of thinking. Maybe you remember the interaction Jesus had with some of his disciples when there was a man born blind, and his disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, whose fault was this? Was it his fault? Was it his sin, or was it his parents' sin? Whose sin caused the blindness? And Jesus responded, 
Neither he nor his parents sinned. That's not what this is about. But this happened so that the works of God might be laid in him. And so Jesus says, no, this, this illness, this situation, it's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. There's something else going on here. But it was still the dominant cultural view of the day, that this man who was lame, then he uh, must be unclean, he, he must have done something to cause this, or in his family line there was something uh, unsavory to speak of. There was also a practical problem just for him engaging in worship uh, the temple was built on the highest hill in Jerusalem, right? It was the Temple Mount. They spoke of going up to the temple. And so it could only be reached by going up a lot of stairs. We're not sure exactly what gate or where the beautiful gate was, but likely it was towards the bottom of the complex because it would be accessible. And climbing all the stairs to the top of the temple each day would have been quite impractical. So think about this man we have in front of us. Lame from birth, facing social, religious, cultural, practical barriers to living a full life, including his worship of God. And like a beggar, sitting with his cardboard sign at a busy intersection, he posts up at the beautiful gate near the temple as people show up for their afternoon time of prayer and worship, hoping to receive some charity. Peter Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Notice the simple truth that Peter and John didn't ignore the man. They, They looked at him, invited him to look at them. And it says the man looks expectantly towards them eager for what they would have for him, thinking perhaps it would be money. Now, side note, just a a simple observation that could apply to our lives. For any time we encounter someone on a street corner, someone in need with a sign or asking for something, maybe a simple practice as followers of Jesus we can embrace, even if we don't have anything to, to give and we don't want to give money, a simple way to honor them is simply to look at them. We just start there by recognizing their humanity, They're an image bearer, a child. Uh, They are made in the image of God, and so we can honor them simply by uh, acknowledging them rather than pretending that they don't exist and just quietly walking by, as, as I've done before and many of us have been tempted to do. Peter and John engage with the man. Look at us, they say, and he looked old. I didn't. Then, verse 6. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's an amazing miracle of God that we read about here in the text. Peter speaks and he says, silver or gold, I do not have. I, I don't have money, in other words. I ain't got no cheddar. I wrote that on my whiteboard in my study this week. I ain't got no cheddar, 
but I got something better. What's that? Woo! Bam! There it goes. Um, really, though, I don't have money, he says, but I've got something better. He has healing power in the name of Jesus, and he, he calls him to get up, and the man jumps up, and he leaps, and he's healed, and he's going track star, running around, leaping, praising God, and other people are amazed and wonder at, at what has just taken place in front of them. And notice the first place he goes in verse 8. He goes, he goes with them into the temple courts. He's healed, and the he, he, first thing he wants to do is he goes and engages in worship. He goes to draw near to God in a way that he hasn't been able to before. And everything would change for this man at this point. Right? He'd be able to work. He'd be able to go and engage in worship. He'd be able to live as others did. He'd no longer be ostracized at the margins of society. I mean, we see this multi-layered healing that Jesus provides. Not just physical restoration and not just spiritual eternal restoration that we'll talk about, but he restores him to, to really wholeness. There's, there's relational restoration, social restoration. One might think of uh, the Hebrew term shalom. The Hebrew word shalom, which we often translate peace, um, is a concept that doesn't just mean the absence uh, of conflict or absence of war or something like that. Shalom is a word that, that connotes um, a holistic sense of well-being. Everything being in its proper place and as it should be. Physically, emotionally, mentally, of course, spiritually. So we see the compassion and power of God. That God wants to heal, God wants to restore what is broken in our world. But when we see this man and think about his condition, within our hearts wells up compassion, right? And that's a clue to, to the heart of God, that God looks on his children that are in need and he moves towards them with compassion and love. Many of you were here back in February when Pastor Gabe from uh, New City Church in Oakland came, and he talked about the love of Jesus, and he gave us a challenge. He gave us some homework. Remember, he challenged us to read through one of the Gospels. Just pick one. Read through it and make a note of every time you see Jesus showing love. It's a really powerful exercise just to read through the Gospel in one sitting and see how he healed and how he spoke the truth, and how he challenged people in their sin. That was an act of love as well. How he loved in so many different ways. He moved towards people who were hurting, and rather than recoiling and moving away from them in their messy situations, he stepped in and moved towards them. If you haven't done that yet, we can just, the homework assignment can just be re-upped for this week. You still, you still can. This could be the week that you read through it and do exactly that. It's powerful to see God's heart in action. And we see not only that, that Jesus wants to heal, but also that he is able to heal. Right? We see his power on display. It wasn't Peter or John and their strength that healed the man. Right? What does verse 6 tell us? It says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. This man is healed in the name of Jesus, through the power of Jesus. Twice in verse 8, actually, it tells us that the man um, jumped up, or he, he leapt up, was, was leaping around. Now, back in the Old Testament, 
uh, it looked forward to a day like this. It tells us when the Messiah would come and he would bring his healing and his restoration and it would rescue and save the world. Uh, things like this would happen. Isaiah 35, verse 6, speaks of the coming age of the Messiah. It says, Then, in that day, basically, will the lame leap like a deer and mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek, and most of the Jews in the first century were reading it in Greek. And the word used in Isaiah 35 in the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, is the same Greek word used here in Acts chapter 2, for the lame will leap. And now this lame man is leaping around the temple courts. Yeah, the Hebrew identifying for us that in Jesus, these promises of the Old Testament, the Savior, the Messiah, the healer, the one that the world has been waiting for, he's here. And his name is Jesus. So we see the compassion of Jesus. We see the power of Jesus. Now you might be saying, hold on, pastor, wait a second. I know we're talking about Jesus healing this man, but... I mean, who are the ones front and center in this story? It's Peter and John, right? Verse 1 tells us one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. And so we say, well, Jesus healed the man, sure, but we're reading a lot about Peter and John and, and their involvement. So was it Jesus or was it them? I mean, again, verse 6 tells us that it's done in the name of Jesus. It's the power of Jesus that heals this man, no doubt. And yet, Jesus is working through, he's using his apostles, his followers to continue his ministry. Think about that. He, he died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to fill his people, and now we see his apostles and his disciples going about continuing his ministry. We could say that Jesus' people continue Jesus' ministry. Jesus, right? Jesus' people continue Jesus' ministry. Think back to Acts chapter 1, if you were with us a few months ago when we started the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, sentence 1, I mean the first sentence of the whole book of Acts. It's uh, the author Luke writing and saying, hey, you guys remember uh, all that Jesus began to do in my former book, speaking of the gospel of Luke. Say, hey, the gospel of Luke, that was what Jesus began to do. And the implication then is that the book of Acts, this part two of a two-part work, is all that Jesus continues to do. Even though he's ascended to heaven, he continues to minister and work in the world through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' people continue Jesus' ministry. Even think back uh, to the Gospels. We see Jesus, as the satirical Babylon Bee article told us, Jesus encountered lame people, paralyzed people. Uh, in the Gospels, John chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man who couldn't walk, and he says to him, get up and walk. And he also forgives his sin in that encounter. But the man gets up and he walks, just like he does here. Now here, Jesus and John encountering this lame man saying, get up and walk. They're doing what Jesus did. 
So Jesus, people continue Jesus' ministry. Not in their own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' people continue Jesus' ministry. Which means, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are one of Jesus' people, then he wants to use you to continue his ministry and presence and power and healing in the world. Do you believe that? Now, it's difficult for us to read an account like this that's miraculous, so different from what most of us experience in in life. You might be thinking, wait a second, I don't don't do miracles? Like, that's not my my bag, and I've actually maybe never seen a miracle taking place like this in front of me. I mean, I've prayed for people who are hurting, and I've showed up with a casserole to love those who are hurting, but I, I've never seen someone get instantly better and leap up and, and, and healed in this miraculous way, praising God. <clears throat> now, I, I get that. And that's my story, too. I, I, I haven't personally healed someone like this. I haven't um, seen anyone healed like this. So I'm in the same boat first with you. So a couple notes on, on miracles and how to make sense of what we're reading. First, throughout the book of Acts, we see the disciples do miraculous things, but they'll say over and over again uh, that they're not doing this in their own power. And so we'll read actually next week when when Peter gets up and explains this miracle and he he preaches the gospel basically. He tells them, hey, this is in the name of Jesus. This is all taking place. He makes it clear this is the Lord's doing. It's Jesus healing Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the will of the Father. So it's not their, their own doing, it's all God's doing. And so that's the first kind of thing to wrap our head around miracles, is that God does miracles, not people. It's the Lord's power. Notice also that the apostles, there's no way around this, they, they, they were given this, this special measure of, of miraculous authority and power to heal in these early days of the church. We read these, these miracles that were, were signs testifying to the truth of the gospel. Testifying to the truth of the good news of Jesus. Now we wonder, does that still happen today? I would say, yes, miracles still happen today. God still heals in powerful, wonderful ways today. But I would say, I don't think there's anyone walking around like thing, the apostles in the exact same way here in the first century who seem to be able to heal anyone of anything as definitively as this. I don't think that seems to be happening in the same way. So yes, miracles still happen. But do we have anyone with the, the, uh, the office of apostle healing in exactly the same way as the first century? I would say no. But think, think with me about this. Uh, Craig Keener He's a scholar, theologian. He wrote a a huge two-volume book called Miracles, where he did tons of research and chronicles, just dozens and dozens of credible miracle accounts from eyewitnesses uh, throughout history and and even in the modern day. And he realizes, hey, there's this like anti-supernatural bias that many of us hold in the West Uh, that many in academia hold, that's specifically who he wanted to speak to in academic circles. But again, there's many of us, just general population. We read miracle accounts or think about the supernatural, and we're like, hmm, not so sure, right? We're we're often skeptics 
in that way. And so he said he wanted to, to chronicle and show uh, that, hey, this sort of thing still happens. God is still moving in powerful ways. And so he, he compiled them into a book that's uh, just only including the most credible uh, documented cases throughout the world. And so I just want to read a few examples. Uh, one of the first ones in his book is that of a, a young woman on her deathbed, uh, almost completely paralyzed from multiple sclerosis, and she heard Jesus' voice calling her to rise and walk, similar to our text here, and she was instantly healed so thoroughly that she didn't even have to contend with atrophied muscles. All three of her doctors have confirmed the account in writing, laying their reputations on the line. Uh, she lived for 40 more years uh, with no issue or recurrence, uh, passing away only recently from uh, COVID, of all things, um, much to the sorrow of those who knew her. Another story is a woman uh, who was blind for 12 years, instantly healed during and through a time of prayer. A fully documented case written up in a medical journal. One account that Keener uh, often shares is that of uh, some years ago, uh, this one actually doesn't have medical documentation because it happened in a place where no doctors were available, but it's a story of a mother, uh, Antoinette, in Congo, and her two-year-old child was bitten by a snake, a venomous snake, and Malembe found her daughter afterwards not breathing, and so she ran with her daughter, carried her for three hours, toddler on her back to a family friend nearby who was doing ministry, and the minister prayed, and the daughter, Therese, began breathing again, and the next day, she was fine. Even though irreparable brain damage starts and sets in within minutes of no oxygen, and yet here is a three-hour gap, and Therese had, had no brain damage, went on to live a full life later achieved a master's degree, retired from ministry. Even reading these stories, I know some of us are like, come on, really? And yet I think we have every reason to believe that, that they're true and, and credible accounts of how God still heals in miraculous ways. Now, Keener, the, the author, talked about some of the trends he's noticed in documenting all these miracles, some of the things that he's found, some patterns of how they occur. Uh, what he, and he wrote this, in terms of patterns, most healings and other miracles recounted in the book appear in the context of people praying for them to happen. Makes sense, right? When we pray and ask for God to powerfully move and intervene, He answers. Not always, but He responds to the prayers of His people. Also, he said the most dramatic miracles happen, happen most often on the cutting edge of evangelizing unevangelized areas. So when the gospel is first going into a community, a society, a place with language barriers, uh, whatever, a setting, he said, that is most uh, parallel to the gospels and the book of Acts, says we often see them there. He said they also happen when they are most needed. So they're not there just to entertain people or to uh, have us neglect the other resources that God has provided, like doctors and modern medicine and so on. He also says that in the Gospels, uh, or as in the Gospels, healing also often follows persistent or desperate faith. Those who are desperate and cry out to God with great faith 
Again, there's no guarantee that when we pray for a miracle and healing, there's no guarantee that God will answer in that way. And yet we see that God is able to heal and deliver from these things. And here's the deal. If, if you're here this morning and you're, you're an atheist, you're like pure naturalist, like there's only natural explanations for, for the universe and for the occurrences in our world, then you read and you hear things like this, and the only response, right, is that, well, these are all untrue or false, or maybe there's some diagnosis that we just don't know about yet that leads to these. But you, if you believe the story, if you, you know, natu- the narrative that, hey, it's just purely natural, there's no supernatural, it's only, uh, you know, natural causes, then every single one of these stories has to be refuted somehow. And I think that takes a lot of faith. Truly, to say every account in that book, every account of the miraculous and the supernatural in the history of the world has to be misunderstood or wrong, that's a big claim. Let's say even even like of of the dozens and dozens in the book, even if, let's say half of them, let's say the majority, so let's say 75% of them are like, yeah, there's some misinformation or diagnosed wrong or or whatever, that still leaves a handful, dozens and dozens of, of stories and encounters that we have to somehow grapple with and make sense of. I think it points us to the power of God, a real living God who is active in his world. I think it makes way more sense to embrace theism in light of all that we know. But for most of us, let's be honest, in the West, most of our ministry, the way God will choose to use us, most often uh, isn't in miraculous healing events like Acts chapter 3. Sometimes it is. Perhaps we need to simply increase our faith that God can heal in powerful ways and still responds in this way. There's a clear connection, right, between healing and prayer. Even verse 1 says that God made to pray when this happens. Clear connection. When we ask, God may say yes and heal, and we should ask. He may heal miraculously. He may heal by ordinary means like doctors and medicine and diagnoses and so on. And sometimes he says no, and we don't fully know why. But as we talked about earlier, physical healing isn't the only thing that this man needed. He needed this, this holistic renewal, social, relational, communal, spiritual healing. We see that God is a God of compassion moving towards people in their, in their desperate and, and messy situations. And so we have to think, as the people of God, if Jesus' ministry continues through Jesus' people, then what is the ministry that he's called each of us to do? Where are the places of need and brokenness and desperation in our world that he's calling us to step into with the love of Jesus? And prayer, and maybe a casserole. Truly, he calls us to move towards people in this way. Maybe it's, again, through, through foster care, opening up your home to someone who's in need. Maybe it's through loving a neighbor through a difficult time. The invitation is for us then to consider, God, by your spirit, how are you sending me out to love people in your name and continue your your, uh, touch in the world? God loves people. Share that. He wants to move towards people. He wants them to know that he loves them. He's going to use us to share that. And we have to remember as we go about all this that the the healing that we almost desperately need, it's not physical or temporary, right? The, The healing that we most desperately need is spiritual We need to be rescued from our sin, from death. Even here in Acts chapter 3, 
uh, Peter is going to go on to preach this sermon using this physical healing to point to this greater healing available through the work of Jesus. And Peter, right after this, if you read on, and we'll talk about it next week, he, he points to the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is all in his name. And it reminds us of the reality that we all have this, this spiritual sickness that's far worse than uh, being born lame. It's far worse than being blind or cancerous. But we're all infected with the spiritual disease, the spiritual sickness called sin that will kill every one of us if we don't have the antidote. And the antidote, of course, is faith in Christ. Jesus said he came to die for us, to take away the consequences and punishment of sin, and to give us new hearts, to heal us from the power of sin and, and lead us to live new lives. See, the thing about miracles, as amazing as they are, healings, this is still temporary, right? I mean, healing on this side of eternity is temporary. This lame man in the story, he died. You know, the, Peter and John and the apostles, they all died. <clears throat> Right? We all will face death. And so when God heals us physically, and some of us have those stories, praise God, what a wonderful thing. And yet, it's simply meant to be a foretaste of, of new creation. It's a small down payment of the glory that is to come in the kingdom of God forever. So healing now is this, this evidence of ultimate healing that is to come when Jesus returns and makes all things new and brings eternal Wholeness, perfect shalom that awaits us on the other side of Christ's return. And so we have to keep eternity in mind. As the people of God, we engage with temporary needs, of course, extending love. We always keep in mind the eternal needs of people, which is the need for Christ and the gospel. And so today, especially on Palm Sunday, we remember these truths. Jesus arrived and was celebrated as the king with palm branches, greeted as he enters the capital city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And yet realize the people were looking for temporary earthly solution. They're like, here's our king, and he's going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to change our fortunes right now. They didn't realize. The, the tragic irony of Palm Sunday is that a few days later, they were shouting, crucify him. Because he didn't meet their temporary earthly expectations because he had the bigger picture in mind, which is what coming to die for the sins of the world and offer eternal life. And so we have to pre prepare our hearts, not just looking at the temporary and the earthly, but realizing Jesus came and through his cross and his resurrection, he's offered eternal life, eternal healing to all who trust in him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we look to you. You are our king. On Palm Sunday, we declare, Jesus, you are the king. We cry out to you for salvation. And yet we realize the irony of Palm Sunday, and that's that temporary healing and change of circumstances is not what you primarily came to give. You came to bring eternal life through your death on the cross for us, bringing us forgiveness of sins and new life through your resurrection. Lord, help us trust in you. Help us engage this week in all that it holds with open hands ready to hear your voice. Thank you for your healing power. We do pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room that needs uh, healing, that now in the name of Jesus, Lord, they would be healed.
restored to life as this lame man was in Acts chapter 3. You can do it, Lord. Pray that anyone in this room who doesn't know you, hasn't put their trust in you as Savior, would, would be healed, not just physically, Lord, but from sin and death and would be restored to a relationship with you through the work of Christ. Pray that you would do that even now. And Lord, for the rest of us, help us trust you no matter what comes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.